So welcome to Harvard's John F. Kennedy uh, Junior Forum. And let me say what a great honor it is for Harvard to have here tonight with us uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Uh, we've given out a program about him, so I'm not gonna do an extensive uh, uh, introduction of him, uh, but we're gonna have a conversation for the first 35 or 40 minutes and then we're gonna open it to questions from the floor. I would simply say about him, now speaking personally, uh, that uh, I've known about Ehud Barak for a long time, uh, first and most importantly, as a legendary warrior. Let me say it again, a legendary warrior. That is somebody who fights and kills and takes the risk of being killed themselves for uh, his cause and country. And uh, that career began early on as a uh, enlisted. It led him to become the commander of what in Israel, or what's known internationally as kind of the Americans would call it SEAL Team Six after Osama bin Laden, but kind of the the, the special special forces. Uh, from that, he went on to become head of. Israeli military intelligence, which is the highest ranking intelligence officer in Israel, uh, Minister of Defense, uh, or sorry, chief of the of the chief of the of Israeli military, Minister of Defense, Prime Minister, Minister of Defense. So his career has actually encompassed the entire chain of command for a military officer from, uh, or for a military enlisted person from right from the bottom right to the top. And he's seen that, therefore, the perspective of every level of lowest level of uh, a combat to tactics, to strategy, to tactics, to strategy, to grand strategy. Uh, he's also a person who's grown over the years as a strategic thinker. So for the strategic thinking community of people whom we know and admire, he's one of the people whom we look to for coordinates. So for us here tonight, it's really a spectacular opportunity to have him. And let me say again, welcome. And let me thank a, uh, a special fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, Daniel Sobelman, who's a fellow there, who's supported by the Israel Institute this year for making the arrangements that got the, the Prime Minister here. So there were so many questions to ask, and we were already having a discussion upstairs. And the questions I asked him, well, should we ask what kind of questions? He said all, all questions, including hard questions. So let me start with the current state of relations between Israel and the US. Uh, obviously, the debate over Iran has been pretty brutal. and. Uh, as the chairman of the National Jewish Democratic Council, Greg Rosenbaum, who's actually a graduate of the Kennedy School, uh, told the New York Times recently, quote, we're on the verge of fratricide in the Jewish community and it's gotta stop, close quote. Now, another of your colleagues, Dagan, said in February, let me give another quote. He says, the person who's caused Israel the most strategic damage on the Iranian front is the Prime Minister. 
close quote. So how do you see the current state of relations and who's at fault? Um, uh, there are differences in regard to the attitude to the Iranian deal. I think it's a bad one. But it's a done deal now. And it's a milk that had been already spilled. Um, it's quite natural in Israel you find, as you could hear, more than one a view on any issue. And I tend to respect the fact that uh, in the United States of America, even among Jews, there is more than one view on any given issue. I saw that it makes sense that uh, any one of us, whether he knows senators or congressmen or other political leaders, should share with them openly and in a straightforward manner what we think about the agreement. But I wonder whether it is the most clever thing to, to intervene uh, directly into the American political aspect of it, the, the decision-making in the, inside the Congress. That should be left to the American side. And um, we expect the United States to respect our sovereignty. The fact that Israel, when it comes to um, decisions critical to our future, our vital interests, I've told more than one president, in fact, three of them in the past, that when it comes to this kind of questions, we, will, uh, we cannot afford delegating the responsibility for taking those decisions to anyone on earth, including our best friends who happen to be you. We have to take it on our own. The same way we have to respect the Americans, sovereignty and the political process in America, and let it be done according to the American uh, rules. I think that it's basically a debate within the family. The relationship are profound, very strong, go very deep with presidents on both sides of the political aisle for, for the last two generations almost, and it will remain so. And uh, the, the um, Obama administration uh, did a lot to support Israel, unprecedented intimacy of the relationship between our uh, intelligence communities, a very deep support of Israel, most crucial uh, programs to protect Israel, the Iron Dome, the missiles, the, the, the uh, missile defense of Israel, and many other projects, and we have to find a way to resume it. So if you were prime minister now, uh, and you were looking at where we stand and where we go looking forward, what would be your top two or three things in the in the Israel-US relationship? I think we had to start it uh, probably uh, weeks ago, immediately after the signing of this agreement. The most urgent uh, objective should be to resume working relationship between the Prime Minister office in Jerusalem and the White House to sit behind closed doors. I see here uh, Gary Seymour, who was involved in such discussions in the past sitting behind closed doors, making sure that we see 
the same challenges in making sure that the Iranians are not trying to cheat, to allocate enough intelligence gathering assets to make sure that they won't succeed in trying to, um, to violate the agreement, trying to formulate together what will constitute a significant violation, what should be the response, what kind of violation should uh, bring the sanctions back, what kind of uh, violation should bring the military option back to the table, what should be done about it. There is a long-standing American commitment to keep the qualitative military edge of Israel over any combination of neighbors. The president never questioned this uh, commitment. I think that the time is probably ripe or should have been ripe to uh, request or to expect that the American administration will find a way to equip Israel with the tools to carry out an independent uh, operation if the need arises against the military um, Iranian uh, nuclear program. If both governments, I emphasize both governments, agree that a major violation has happened and basically there is a breakout case and the Iranians are trying to charge toward nuclear uh, capability. Uh, such an understanding needs a lot of trust and a deep level of mutual trust, respect, and high level of intimacy. I hope it's still there and will enable it. And of course, we have to encourage the Americans and indirectly our neighbors to engage in a major conference with all neighbors, with the Saudis, Egyptians, Gulf states, uh, Turkey, uh, Jordan, whatever, to deal with the challenges of the Middle East, security challenges, uh, mainly the uh, fighting against radical Muslim terror, how to contain or put at bay the hegemonic intentions of Iran, uh, and how to establish major economic or basic inf infrastructure, huge projects for the whole region. This could not be achieved without both sides uh, understand that the Palestinian issue should come to the front, should be the first on the priority and the first on the timeline to be dealt with. But if we manage to do it, there is an opportunity here. There is a huge common interest to us and all the Sunnite moderate countries around in regard to fundamentalist terror in Iran, and it should be it should, the opportunity should be seized. It's a one-in-a-generation opportunity. And I think that the ground is right for it. Let me, let me uh, get you to say more about that because we were talking upstairs at a off-the-record conversation, and I won't talk about that, but you've said in public, uh, you've expressed a very strong view about the necessity to deal with the Palestinian issue in order to deal with higher priority issues and you have a nice, uh, almost management 101 conception that a strategically driven organization should be capable of distinguishing between what matters most and second and third. So say a little bit about that, especially in the context of the Palestinian issue and the other agenda today. You know, the, the Middle East is going through a unprecedented uh, geopolitical earthquake. We're seen nothing like this since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. 
Israel find itself in a kind of perfect storm, both at the clashing point of the Huntingtonian uh, clash of civilization. At the same time, in the eye of the storm of a swirling a big struggle within Islam itself, in Sunnah and Shia, Moderna and tradition, whatever. Um, so there is bad news in it for Israel, good news. Bad news is that uh, it's tough neighborhood. Nothing to compare. Middle East is not the Midwest. Totally different place where there is no mercy for the weak, no second opportunity for those who are not capable of defending themselves. And all, you know, there are new, new threats emerging every other year. Now it's a recent one is ISIS and but all the old ones, Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran, they are all alive and kicking. So all the threats are there. But there is good news that Israel is the strongest country a thousand miles around Jerusalem, from Tripoli and Libya to Tehran, including these two capitals. And so Israel, to the best of my judgment, can act out of strength and self-confidence to change the reality. It's a bad reality. Too many bad guys around. Many of them would love to see Israel disappearing, but we, we are there to stay. And we are strong enough. So I think that we should feel confident enough to propose getting into this regional summit or international conference, like the one we had in Madrid some 20 years ago, 25 years ago and be ready to discuss issues. Palestinian issues should be the first, inevitably, because all the neighboring leaders, the moderate autocrats, they agree with us about the priority of the threats of Iran and radical Muslim terror. But they cannot push these common interests to the surface because they are afraid of the response of their own streets. Their own street will not swallow it, will not be able to take it as long as we are not dealing with the Palestinians. So I, I propose more than once that we'll take, be the Saudi plan with Israel reservation. We cannot start anything without adding two pages of reservation. So with Israel reservation or the Arab League plan with Israeli reservations and say that we are ready to discuss it. Go behind closed doors and start to discuss all the core issues. Borders, uh, security, uh, refugees, Jerusalem, end of conflict. Nothing is beyond the uh, possibility to, to deal with. And I cannot promise you that a solution will be solved, but it will simplify and it will relaxate the whole tension. I hope that certain in the future, some formula will be found after I left uh, Offices, Prime Minister, some 15 years ago after Camp David, I said, whether it take five, 15, or 50 years, when the time will come to solve the problem, you will need magnifying glass to see the differences between what was on the table, ready for a decision at Camp David, and what will be decided ultimately. I cannot promise you that that's the case uh, uh, anymore. Probably we won't find a, a full agreement that will end the conflict and put a, a finality for mutual claim. 
So we have to consider something gradual, probably even unilateral steps. But my wish and dream and hope and belief is that it's still possible. We are not beyond the point of no return to all the one-state solution. Two-state solution is the only solution for Israel. I want to invest a minute in explaining it in a moment. But we could think in the long term of certain kind of confederation between a Palestinian state that has already been established and Jordan, for example which has a majority of Palestinians in its population. Later on, probably with Israel. Even later on, probably with other players in the Middle East. But that basically should be vision. Why is it so important? I'm not talking because of the Palestinians. I care about Israel. What is the, the essence of the problem that we have with the Palestinians is very simple. Between River Jordan to the east and Mediterranean to the west, they live 12 million people, 8 million Israelis, 4 million Palestinians, or 13, probably 5 million Palestinians. If there is only one political entity reigning over this piece of land named Israel, it will become inevitably, that's the key word, think of it, inevitably, either non-Jewish or non-democratic. Because if this block of millions of Palestinians, which clearly have their uh, national aspirations, if they can vote to the Knesset, it's a binational state par excellence immediately and within a generation or two, probably a binational state with Muslim majority. But if they cannot vote to the Knesset, that's not a democracy. I don't want to quote other examples from the previous millennia, from other continents. It's not a, a, a democracy. Neither is the Zionist dream. So we have a compelling imperative stemming out of our worry about the Israeli future, the Israeli identity, the future of our own grandchildren in putting a wedge on this slippery slope toward a, a one-state solution. That's our real challenge. Okay, thank you. Uh, and I think that was certainly worth a, 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 an excursion to put it in, put it in context. Let me take you back to Iran, which we were discussing upstairs. <coughs> so the Prime Minister has, uh, or re there's recently been published in Israel, a biography of the Prime Minister, and it's created a, it's in Hebrew, but uh, if you read just the English press that I can read, there's created a little bit of a stir, maybe more than a little bit of a stir. And uh, according to some tapes that are of, that were being taped by the journalists, as I read the newspapers, but I, I may be wrong. Uh, you were, uh, as prime minister, or as a defense minister, and then in this dual monarchy with Bibi through the period through, through the, when you left the government in 2013. 13. So in 2010 and 2011 and 2012, on at least three separate occasions, you and the Prime Minister wanted Israel to attack Iran's nuclear facilities unilaterally. And if again, I, if what the papers say, the main problem was you were opposed by most of your own government, including Ashkenazi, the uh, Defense Minister, the uh, Mossad, 
Jim Bett, and even some members in the cabinet, like Steinitz, who's, who's been here. So tell us a little bit about what was your view and what was their view, but in any case, if the prime minister and the defense minister want to do it, why didn't they do it? I tried to block the publication when it uh, was leaked to the Israeli TV, so I would not speak about it in front of another camera in Boston. Um, well, maybe just I'll uh, ask you about the proposed attacks. Okay? No, so it, it was clear that we consider it very seriously more than one occasion in the recent years out of our responsibility to protect Israel, its security, and its future. And it's a democracy. We have a different decision-making process than you had. I've heard that Lincoln once, President Lincoln once wrote a, a decision to the cabinet. He asked the, what the, the people around the table, some dozen people think, and every, everyone says, yes, we are for it, for it, for it, for it, all of them, and say, then he said, the naysayers got it today. <laughs> Depend on the on the what happens between the ears of one person. In Israel, it's not that way. We have a, a genuine, quite tough uh, debates, and we have to convince a majority of the cabinet or the government about any uh, step. And I don't want to go into it uh, uh, further, but I can just tell you that the. Uh, Iranian issue for us, it's really extremely severe issue. We really believe and still believe that a nuclear Iran might become a major risk for the stability of not just of the region in a way of the world. And we thought of the time, at the time, and I'm still thinking that Israel should make sure that if there is a need to block Iran, every step that could be taken to uh, block it, even if it involves a certain risk and nothing important could be achieved without taking risk, uh, it, it deserves it. The issue is very complicated. Nowadays, after the signing of the agreement, it, it, uh, expected uh, passing in the Congress, uh, it's a basic, as I mentioned in the answer in the first question, it's a done deal. So we have to look forward, and I al already told you what I think should be done uh, at the present. Okay. And, uh, and as we were discussing upstairs as well, Don, for Americans trying to figure out what's happening in the map of the Middle East now, it's just a, a blur. It's too confusing. And there's so many different players who can keep track of even their names. The borders seem to be even at risk. Uh, it's a, a, a region in turmoil, and uh, you live in the middle of it, so you watch it much more carefully, and often with a lot more perspective, because you're more accustomed to the history, you're more accustomed to the cultures. So if you're trying to help us understand what's happening in the region now, and how that's gonna be impacted, by the Iranian nuclear deal. How, how do you see that? Uh, we do not pretend to penetrate it fully. It's too complicated for us as well. Um, in regard to the Iranian deal, I can just tell you that one of the problems is that 
the deal relieve Iran from the uh, worries about other items on their agenda from terror, supporting their proxies. It, it makes them much more capable of intimidating neighbors. Uh, they are basically recognized now by the United States, China, Russia, the rest of the world as a legitimate Middle Eastern power that encourage them. It might stretch the uh, survivability and power of the Ayatollahs, which I believe is a group which is bad not just for the region, but for the Iranians as well. And there is not a real choice there like in uh, Jeffersonian democracies or, or in Israel. And um, with this agreement, in a way, the world lost the moral or legal authority to block any other third grade player who wants to turn into a threshold nuclear power from doing it. You won't be able to tell any other player on earth why the hell you let Iran becoming de facto threshold nuclear power and you try to deprive uh, A or B or C country from doing the same. And of course, there is a risk that at a certain point they will follow in the footsteps of North Korea or Pakistan and try to reach actual nuclear capability. I want to remind you that uh, there was in the last 35 years probably six different second grade countries who tried to turn nuclear. Two gave up, gave it up uh, voluntarily, Libya after Lockerbie and uh, the South Africans with the uh, regime change. Two were blocked physically by uh, surgical attacks, Iraq and Syria, and two turned into nuclear power in, in spite the, or defying the whole world, namely Pakistan and North Korea. My strong feeling is that Iran is trying to follow in the footsteps of uh, North Korea and Iran and uh, Pakistan. I vividly remember I was head of our intelligence when Bill Casey headed uh, your intelligence under Reagan. We used to meet every 90 days in Langley, Virginia. I remember the discussions about uh, Pakistan, the same story. How many centrifuges, how many sites, how dispersed they are, how, may, how much accumulated and rich uranium they have. What are the deep motivations to turn uh, nuclear? Do they go through the plutonium uh, path or just enrich uranium path, whatever. The decision finally, Remind you, it was Reagan. No, uh, no one suspected he was soft or not tough enough. They decided to bribe the Pakistanis who were afraid of the Indian superiority uh, with 75 F-16s. Many of those F-16s are now wired to carry Pakistani nuclear uh, weapons. And uh, with uh, North Korea, I remember sitting down with uh, President Clinton on the satellite photos of this uh, uh, Yongbyon reactor, just reactivated, but uh, it was already in power. The questions were the same. How, how deep the, uh, the ammunition can penetrate, how accurate it is, what happens if it explodes, what happens to the material, rich materials, and so on. What will happen if you hit the reactor and the contamination will be carried by the river into some 
city of, uh, of hundreds of thousands of people. But North Korea turned into nuclear power. So we have to be, uh, to, to suspect and verify. Okay, I think that's a good, a good, uh, sus certainly suspect and verify to the best of our ability. Let me take you to another issue in the region that we were discussing earlier, ISIS. So again, Americans look at ISIS and try to figure out how big a threat is it, how alarmed should we be about it, what should we do about it. And our Israeli friends, mostly, not all together, but the government and many of the people that have had your job, like Yadlin, is, uh, are much more relaxed. So here's a quote from Amos recently. He says, at the end of the day, we're talking about several thousand unrestrained terrorists riding around in trucks and firing Kalashnikovs and machine guns. So in the Israeli threat matrix, where does ISIS come and what do you think should be done about it? I would not underestimate ISIS, but I propose to all of us not overestimate them. There are 30 or 40,000 people basically driving uh, Toyota pickups with World War II or the 70s machine guns. They don't have a single artillery battalion, uh, attack helicopter squadron, a drone or, or jet fighter or a tank, probably a few tanks. They were, uh, they were not trained uh, by uh, your Marine Corps, they were trained by Saddam Hussein officers. Uh, this is the same army that couldn't take over Iran for eight years and was disappeared from the battlefield when the Americans came into Iraq and, and uh, left Kuwait very fast. So this is the kind of army. Uh, they are very good on the TV, I, I should admit, you know, it's uh, Assad slaughtered a quarter of a million of his uh, citizens using tanks, artillery, uh, jet fighters, attack helicopters, even chemical weapons, and it did not suffice to wake up uh, Cameron or the British Parliament or here the administration of the Congress. And then came ISIS and beheaded two journalists in, the, in front of the cameras. Uh, um, I don't like to disappoint all of you, but it's quite common practice in the Middle East to behead people. There's nothing new about it. But it was done to journalists in front of the cameras and within 48 hours, the whole world is against ISIS. It became a major issue. The bottom line result is good, but it tells you something about how superficial and shallow are the decision-making processes that lead us into action. Uh, they succeeded until now because no one fought against them, seriously. The toughest fighters they met is the kind of a Kurdish militia, boys and girls about the age of the students, not the first row uh, over there, <laughs> uh, with, uh, with uh, equipment that they collected. The equipment is much older than the boys and girls who <laughs> use it, and uh, they fought against them. They fought in Ramadi against Sunnite members of the Iraqi army who, who do not want to fight. So until now, they just get into a vacuum. And uh, I think that uh, such organization could not be dealt with piecemeal. You have to think several times before you decide to do something, but once you, you 
decide to destroy it, you, you have to have already the forces at hand, the plans, everything, and do it. If you want to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Every passing week that ISIS is still on its feet when no other than the United States of America, together with major local friends, announce a war against them, gives them a huge of prestige and ignites the imagination of young uh, young Muslims or, or citizens turned Muslim out of enthusiasm to support them. And uh, I think that they should be dealt with. It's not simply because there is a half a dozen others and there is an irony here. Think if, if an effective action against ISIS takes place from now and end up a year from now with significantly suppressed ISIS. Cooperation of Americans, Turks, Jordans, uh, Jordanians, uh, uh, I don't know, Emirates, Air Force. Probably even Russians now. So who won? It, my common sense tells me that Assad is the real winner. We helped him to get rid of one of his most bitter rivals and enabled him to con con uh, converge or, or focus more intensely on the rest of the rebels. But who are the rest of the rebels? These are the moderates that we are supposed to be helping. We are training them. We are preparing them to take over. So it doesn't make sense. We, there should be some more clarity, strategic clarity in these actions. I thought, for example, that the Turks raised a very good idea a year and a half ago, probably now with the new deployment of Russian physically coming to Latakia, it becomes a little bit more subtle. But the Turks proposed a year and a half ago, let's announce the whole area north of Aleppo. It's, it's a one quarter of Syria, but probably three times the area of Israel. Let's announce this a humanitarian cordon sanitaire, a place where all the millions that are now trying to reach Europe could come from Iraq and Syria, get humanitarian support from the rest of the world, and in order to keep them, protect them against Assad forces, we will announce the Turks proposed the whole area to be a no-fly zone. They didn't go further to tell that if this happens, inevitably, the, you will have a clash when you try to impose the no-fly zone with the um, Syrian Air Force. That will create a great opportunity to destroy the Syrian Air Force the Syrian air defense, the Syrian command control system, main installations of the regime, and reverse the whole uh, situation of Assad beyond recuperation. And it was much more effective way than to train now 2,000 people or 3,000 people that will join, hopefully, the battle in a year time on the side of the good guys, whatever it means in Syria. So if, if a proposal like that were to work, and if Assad were to be gone, then what, what is, is Syria? Does Syria look like Libya, or does it look like uh, uh, what? Uh, first, I, I do not know. <laughs> Three, uh, four years ago, we started with the Arab Spring, we called it. It resonated in historian's mind with the spring of nations in 
uh, Europe some uh, almost two, 200 years ago. And uh, it turned within bloody three years into Muslim winter. And so, you know, you know uh, artificial constructs, which were the secular Arab nation, so to speak, uh, created by delineation of, uh, of uh, lines on the map, breaking any kind of uh, no, a genuine structure of a tribal association made by Sachs Pico in the Middle East by some others in, in North Africa. And it ended up that this uh, stand, uh, stood firm as long as a tough iron fist autocrat reigned over them. And in a way that somewhat reminded us of uh, former Yugoslavia. It uh, erupted the moment that this iron fist had been removed. So in this regard, we see uh, already seeing uh, Lebanon disintegrated, Libya disintegrated, uh, Iraq might end up disintegrating into three different entities, and uh, Syria is disintegrating. So I don't know what will happen. I would prefer to see Assad falling down. And I expected years ago that if really the other players will join hands, the Jordanians, the Iraqis, the Turks, with the backing of America. He could be already deposed long time ago, I believe, but it hadn't happened for whatever reason, so he's still there. So now, with the Russians already in Latakia, probably the, the set of practical options is going to change. I cannot predict what will happen. But probably at certain point, we'll find ourselves that the Russians are blocking the removal of Assad, and they might end up in, uh, even if he losing Damascus, he will end up in an enclave uh, around the uh, Latakia, Tartus, and the Ansaria Mountains, uh, basically the uh, fortress of, of uh, ethnical Alawite, probably with uh, other forces, uh, including Jabhat Nusra or whatever. And half a dozen of other organizations, probably a majlis like we had in Iraq that will represent all the tribes. The Middle East is not yet ripe for Jeffersonian democracies. I remember I was very close to Mubarak. I remember him telling me some 12 years ago when the Bush administration contemplated a free election in Iraq. So Mubarak told me, are they crazy? What do they mean by this free election? What do you mean free election in Iraq? He said, we are not Jeffersonian democracy. It's not Maryland there. It's a, we are tribal societies. No one loses a, a moment of sleep in a night before election contemplating for whom to vote. It's, there are heads, the patriarchs of the family, of the wider family, of the clan, of the tribe. The patriarchs make their decisions and 90% of the people vote according to this decision. So I know, he told me, the results of the free election in Iraq in advance. Ask him, what's the election? He said, there is a majority of Shiites, so that they will win. And basically, free election in Iraq means to give Iraq to Iran on a silver platter. So you, you should say America is great in its exceptionalism. It's great from both sides of the political line in carrying the torch of freedom, liberty, the right values, the right 
dream, long-term dream for the world. But when it comes to the nuances of execution in a totally different societies, culture, traditions, whatever, both with the neocons and now with the uh, administration, it's easier said than done to, to navigate with these regional uh, complexities which are sometimes have too many internal contradictions to be easily solvable. It, it, it was an American president who said, we don't do nuance. Yeah. So we've come to the time for opportunities from the floor to ask questions. There are two microphones here on the floor and there are two microphones in the loge. So please stand up, get in line, and we'll be able to ask your question. We have only one speaker tonight, uh, uh, the Prime Minister, so no speeches are going to be permitted. But questions of any sort are fine. And please first introduce yourself, tell us who you are, put your question briefly, and it should end with a question mark. Let's start with this lady right here, please. Shalom, Tadaraba. Uh, my name is Nancy Ko. I'm a junior, joint in history and Jewish studies. Um, you mentioned, it's a very tall mic and a very tall, short person. You mentioned uh, in your talk that one priority, perhaps the priority um, in Israeli society politics today should be the Palestinian issue. Um, but what comes to mind for me is that in the last Israeli elections, uh, Shas, which is a far right Mizrahi party, um, operated on the logo of Anashim Shkufin, invisible people, right? And if there's anyone who's invisible in Israeli society, it's the Arab Israelis or the Palestinians, whatever you choose to call them. Um, but in their advertising videos, Anashim Shkufim meant um, poor Jewish Israelis. Um, so there was a socioeconomic issue that is very real, uh, very present, but they were using that as a way to eclipse what was also a legitimate issue, which is the Palestinian issue. And Bibi did a similar turn when he was talking about the Iranian security problem. So my question to you, uh, Mr. Barak, Prime Minister Barak, um, is um, if we want to, at the same time, uh, acknowledge the reality of the Iranian threat um, and the reality of socioeconomic problems, the widening gap in Israel, the high cost of living, and at the same time bring people to sympathize with, empathize with, the Palestinian issue, how are we going to do that without making the same mistake that I argue was done in the last election, which was to postpone the Palestinian issue altogether yet again? I think that you complained about the height of the microphones. Here in Harvard, they want to make all of you stand on your toes. <laughs> so, and uh, it's uh, applicable to, to Israeli government as well. There are too many problems. So you have to be able to, to operate in multitasking uh, way. It's, uh, you have to deal with the poverty in Israel and uh, at the same time to deal with the uh, problem of terror. And there is a real problem of terror. There is a, a real, even, even uh, ISIS, uh, they cannot conquer Israel or they cannot threaten Israel with uh, heavy divisions or with uh, missiles or sophisticated air force, but they can uh, sow more terror and we are living with terror all our life. So basically we have to deal with all problems and without losing sight. So poverty, you know, I'm one of the oldest uh, here, is probably uh, uh, Professor Allison is older than me, but I still remember, <laughs> I still remember the, the birth of the state of Israel. At the time we had been six, 
650,000 people. Since then, we grew 12 times in population, 60 times in GDP. We, we have more, more uh, Israeli companies uh, traded in NASDAQ than any other country outside of, the, of North America. We have, uh, the Zionism is extremely uh, successful project, probably one of the most successful in the 20th century. And we still have poor people, but they are living much better than probably than we were living when we were born. The poverty is also relative. So we have a lot to do, but we should never lose sight of the real issues that will decide our fate. I kept telling our cabinet, as uh, Graham uh, mentioned, I spent most of my life fighting terror from close distances with uh, one finger on the, on the trigger. But I kept telling our people, you know, we are quite good in killing mosquitoes. The time had come to drain the swamp, to deal with the root causes of the problem. And the Palestinian issue is one of the root causes. We are making mistakes. We can afford it. No one can impose upon us to deal with the Palestinians. But we are on the verge of a slippery slope that can end up without even uh, feeling it, that we deteriorate toward a one-state solution, which, as I explained, is extremely dangerous for Israel. I don't care about the Palestinians, I care about Israel. And I tell you and I tell all, I see some other members of our tribe uh, over there, <laughs> that uh, Israel is strong enough to afford dealing with both poverty in Israel, uh, better education for whoever wants to get it, and the Palestinian issue simultaneously. Okay, this gentleman in the lounge, please. Hi, uh, my name is Ray. I come from Israel, <coughs> and I'm a dual degree here and in the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, so first, uh, let me disagree on the don't care of the Palestinian issue. I think we should care of the Palestinian from our Jewish values, uh, and not only from small interests. Um, but let me, uh, you spoke about unilateral uh, actions before regarding the, uh, you know, uh, evacuation or uh, creating our, our own borders and evacuation of the West Bank. Uh, do you see a scenario in the next, I don't know, decade uh, that a leader in Israel has the will and the mandate to enforce such an action? And also, uh, it has proven not so, not so effective in Gaza, uh, you know, to... Not to make a big deal out of it, but uh, do you think it will work in the West Bank? Uh, first of all, in Gaza it had been done in a very kind of, uh, without any understanding or agreement with any other party, and it's done without enough preparation for the physical uh, circumstance or future of the people who were evacuated. I think that in spite of all you might hear on the surface in the political discourse or public discourse in Israel, that no one really wants to go back to Gaza. And it's, it is telling in my judgment. With all criticism about what Sharon have done, and I found it quite telling that Sharon, out of all people, he was not a, what is called an easy feinschmecker about uh, Palestinians. He was not a great Palestinian lover. But he reached the conclusion that it's better for Israel, not for the Palestinians, to pull out of Gaza. 
And of course, we were surprised by the uh, taking over of Hamas and by uh, what, what happened later on. But the fact that no Israeli wants to go back to Gaza, or almost no Israeli, is telling me that ultimately the bottom line was a wide decision. Now, I don't want to speculate about what will happen. I basically say that there is still a way to delineate a line within the land of Israel, however painful is it, that will keep for Israel the main settlement blocks, certain strategic sites over the mountainous ridge, a certain uh, security area eastern of Ben-Gurion airport, and of course all the Jewish, uh, Jewish neighborhoods in Jerusalem, and create on the other side of this line, within the line having a solid Jewish majority for generations to come, and beyond this line, an opportunity for a Palestinian demilitarized uh, uh, independent state, viable independent state to uh, flourish and be a good neighbor. We need military presence along the Jordan River, but I'm confident that this is something which is solvable and possible. And not incidentally, I mentioned the long-term prospect of having certain confederation or some other arrangements with the, the Hashemite kingdom as a part of stable equilibrium for the long run. We are democracy. So first of all, a government should be elected who would want to do that. I have no doubt that there is a silent, dormant majority in Israel that once an elected government will pass this decision, uh, it will be executed and followed by the Israeli uh, public. This gentleman in the lodge, please. Hi, uh, my name is Moshe, and I'm a researcher at the college. I, I met you Sp yesterday. Yeah. And speak into the microphone. Yeah. Hi, um, I, I wanted to ask you a question, a little bit more historic. Um, so, when you're bargaining and when you're uh, offering uh, a peace deal. Uh, I'm wondering kind of if you can talk to us a little bit about uh, what goes into the decision of what to offer and what kind, of, um, what kind of things to put on the table and what kind of things not to put on the table. That's not a question for a short answer, but ba <laughs> basically, I have to say we, we have the, the piece of land that we are talking about is known to both sides. No uh, weaver or hill is going to change by any negotiation. The deployment of population is clear. The security needs of Israeli, uh, Israel are clear. So basically based on what happened, and I didn't start from scratch. I came to power after Rabin was assassinated. I was before then his chief of staff, I was commanding the army when Rabin was moving to Oslo. I was the one who had to approve the legitimacy, so to speak, of the security arrangements during the ASO agreements. Later on, I became a Minister of Interior in his government, then Minister of Foreign Affairs for Shimon Peres. So I was deep into the details of this. So we, we used common sense. We, we didn't start from scratch. We had a plan. Basically, the idea was in a way simple, it's very painful, but it's not complicated to delineate a line that includes the settlement blocks. Not every settlement, there are some 
70 or 80 isolated settlement beyond the settlement blocks. But that settlement blocks that covers one digit percentage of the area of the uh, West Bank uh, has within it probably 80 or 85 percent of the settlers. So we put this area, we know what is security, we need this screen of uh, military presence on the Jordan River, we need early warning, we need uh, uh, deployment area, certain corridors through which our uh, armor division can move to the border in a case of emergency. Refugees is more legal and judicial and symbolic uh, issue. Jerusalem is the most subtle one, most delicate one, not easy, uh, but it's not true that there were no way to solve it. So basically we decided once you want to, to reach an agreement, you propose. We put an offer on the table together with President Clinton that metaphorically speaking covered 90 plus percent of whatever Arafat could think of. And we told him, we didn't try to tell him, take it or leave it. We didn't try to dictate. We said, we just want you to accept this far-reaching offer as a basis for negotiations. And he rejected it, which in a, and, and turned deliberately to terror. We watched it through intelligence. So in a way, we, we realized that as I said at the time, there is no partnering in Arafat for the time being, at 2000, uh, whatever. But it's now a new round. The fact that Arafat was no partner shouldn't blind us for seeing that we have a compelling imperative to find a way to move forward and to find certain solution. If, and if we cannot find a partner because it takes two to, to tango or to make peace. So we have to think very seriously about either interim agreements or even unilateral steps that will put a wedge on this slippery slope, as I called it, toward one state solution. This gentleman, please. Uh, my name is Ben Bolcher, and I'm a Harvard alumnus. Uh, my question is about leadership. In America, after someone's president, they typically are concerned about their legacy and do not return to public service. After you were prime minister, uh, you decided to return to public service in, in defense. What can you comment about your decision process to return to public service after being prime minister of Israel? Um, I spent several years in the pub, in the private life and enjoyed it very much. At some point, I realized that. Nothing happens, we are not moving. It was after the evacuation from Gaza, but we are not touching two issues. And I was worried about two issues, about Iran and about the Palestinian issue. And I felt that the left wing is, is losing, gradually losing political territory, political ground. So, you know, I was involved with the country for decades. I found myself once again interested in uh, influencing it. So I came back, I took over labor once again. We couldn't 
gather enough support to build a government. So I realized that instead of spending time in opposition in those critical years where I thought that there are only few years, seven uh, or eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, probably no more than five years, because before you won't be able to uh, act effectively uh, to block Iranians from turning nuclear, and you can't effectively seize opportunities to uh, strike a deal with the Palestinians. So I decided to enter back, and I entered. In Israel, it's, it's possible. It's part of the game. This gentleman, please. Hi, thank you. Um, the mic is actually a bit short for me. but <laughs> uh, My name is Jonathan, and I'm with the Graduate School of Education. You describe the security situation uh, in the Middle East right now as a perfect storm of threats for Israel, and I suspect a lot of your neighbors would agree with that assessment. I wonder, does this situation present any opportunities for Israel to cooperate with some of its neighbors? Yeah, I see that. I believe I mentioned it. There is huge underlying common interest with the Saudis, uh, Emirates, uh, the Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan, even Turkey to focus on three elements, um, hitting radical Muslim terror, uh, containing or, or putting at bay the hegemonic intentions of Iran, and uh, solving the Palestinian issue. And they are interconnected, these issues, because as I've mentioned, without Israel and the Palestinians finding a way to go through this regional uh, opportunity into the Palestinian issue, the others will not be solved. We cannot cause the Arab moderates to push it to the uh, surface. So the opportunity is there. It's important, I believe, to the Israel, because when we talk only about the Palestinians, the conventional wisdom among Israel is that we can get nothing from the Palestinians, we only can give them. It's not exactly accurate, but that's the perception. When it comes to the Arab world, we have a lot to get. It's recognition, it's uh, participation in uh, major projects, it's smoothing our efforts vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians, and it is the starting point for a long generational process of Israel getting accepted by the region. So we have a lot to get from it, and Israel is much more tolerant to the idea of making uh, daring steps with the Palestinians within the context of a regional uh, agreement. We have to do it. It's a great opportunity. This lady, please. Hi, my name is Anud, and I'm a second year student here at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm half Jordanian and half Palestinian. Uh, Mr. Barak, I want to ask you a question about um, you're saying, you're talking about all the peace talks and uh, what we're trying to do in the region, yet you continue expanding the settlements in Palestine. And uh, as the recent story that happened where the toddler was burned, he's a two-year-old Palestinian that was burned in his house by settlers, and uh, I think he was, he's put in jail for six months or something. Also, another thing about our talks of peace talks, in 2009, you were accused of war crimes by the United Nations report. 
on the war in Gaza. And again in 2013, you shall, the United Nations shelter for the Palestinians in Gaza where people die who were running from the war. Whether it's Hamas or Israel, they were in a shelter, yet it was shelled. So with all these talks, where is this going when the settlements are still expanding and when the situation in Gaza continue to happen and when the war crimes continue to happen? Thank you. Um, the tragic event of the burning of the family, in fact, three members of the family uh, uh, died as a result of it, had not yet been, uh, not yet been ended. We didn't yet even have the executors of these crimes in our hands, but I'm confident they will be put to, uh, to justice, brought to justice the moment they are in our hands. I think that there is a great, it's a great tragedy that I believe bothers uh, or make Israelis as well as Palestinians kind of uh, deeply anxious and worried about. The other phenomena, you know, we're we are in a continued fight. In a way, I, once again, you, were, you look too young to, to be born by the time, but probably your parents might remember. We were, we were dragged into this fight with the Palestinians. We didn't plan it. Uh, when Israel was born, and I remember a negotiation with Arafat in uh, Camp David about this issue, and he raised these, the same arguments uh, without the recent events. Um, in front of President Clinton, I told President Clinton, you were, you, you were not yet born, but Arafat was a teenager, I was a kid. I remember the partition plan of the General Assembly in 47. It proposed the partition of the land of Israel between a Palestinian state and or Arab state and a Jewish state. The Jewish state was supposed to be three cantons, hardly connected to each other, without Jerusalem, without even an access to Jerusalem. And Ben-Gurion, on behalf of the Zionist movement and the Israeli people, was ready to accept it. The Palestinians rejected it and announced that they are going to kill the baby before it stands on its feet, the baby Israel, I mean. And they failed. So as I told Arafat at the time, we will never be apologetic even about the very kind of conditions that create this situation. Now I turned as a, almost 50 years later, Prime Minister of Israel, I went to Arafat, the elected leader of the Palestinian people, and proposed the same, let's put an end to it. I even told him about this building. I told him, why do you care about these buildings and settlements? All settlements together, all settlements together, does not cover even 2% of the area. Not even 2%. And we have an opportunity to strike a deal and make a peace agreement, put an end to the conflict. It's not that far, it's not inconceivable or unachievable. It takes 18 months to build a house in Israel. So assume that certain building is now being built, will end up being on your side of a mutually agreed border. Why do you care? Get, take it as a gift. If it ends to being built in a mutually agreed side 
of the or mutually agreed uh, side of the border, which is Israel. Why do you care about it? Let's focus on solving the problem. We are not, we are almost not building. Israel do not build in the isolated settlements beyond the uh, uh, kindergarten or a new class for a uh, uh, new student. We are building within the settlement blocks. We are building in the, in the neighborhoods of Jerusalem, which are uh, Israeli neighborhoods. So basically, you know, and Netanyahu, there are many complaints. When I was prime minister, we built four times the pace that Netanyahu is building now. And no one complained because it was clear that we are trying to reach peace. It's when Olmert was prime minister, we built twice the pace that we are building now. So there are a lot of talk about it. I don't believe that the building in the settlements blocks the possibility of an uh, agreement. It's basically, it's about leadership. Leaders on both sides should be determined to overcome the uh, nuances and to to go back to their people. I used to but tell Arafat and Abu- But violating international law by building the settlements. Uh, yeah, I fully understand what you say, and we have our position on this issue, and we respect all the international uh, institutions, but we are the side who is ready to go and put an end to the conflict, and I think that as long as the other side doesn't move forward and give up the intention to, to gradually isolate or destroy Israel and is ready to sign a peace agreement, there is a limit or boundary to the uh, legitimacy of the argument against whatever happens in Israel. So a good, a good tough question and a good tough answer. This gentleman here. Hi. Um, we need to do shorter questions sure. and shorter answers if we can, please. Uh, hi, Mr. Barak. Uh, my name is Adrian Arkache. I'm a medical student and I'm also a public health student. Um, so a uh, question I have is um, if, if these settlements are so small and they might be an impediment to travel in the region, um, what's, what's the big deal with Israel stepping back and saying you know, that we can, we can remove them if, if, as you say, it's only 2%? Um, of that area, um, and also, what is what is Israel doing um, when it when it does go on the offensive to reduce the amount of um, civilian casualties uh, when when it goes on the military offensive? Uh, in, in regard to the first part of the question, we, we are democracy. You know, it's, uh, so the government is elected by the people. The people doesn't see the Arab side ready to negotiate. So the people say, uh, basically, the most of, a majority of the public says. Okay, so we will elect a government that keeps, uh, keeps acting to strengthen these settlement blocks. Now, we think that the settlement blocks are needed. So a majority of Israelis support the building of the uh, settlement blocks. We made, for example, several years ago, under Palestinian request, American request of President Obama, I was Minister of Defense, I supported it, a 10-month a moratorium, not a single uh, building uh, was uh, initiated. I told the Abu Mazen at the time, you know, I should take you once, probably incognito, into one of these settlements. You see happy Palestinians 
workers uh, employed and working and building it, so you won't believe it, but we agreed to put a moratorium not to build in order to enable a, a better atmosphere for negotiation. It ended with nothing. When it ended, Abu Mazen just asked for another 10 months. So Israelis felt that they are manipulated and were not ready. So I don't want to, to remove ourselves from, the, from responsibility to the act in an open and sober mind, but most of responsibility for blocking this whole thing is upon the Palestinian shoulders, sometimes mistakes in Europe and in other parts of the world. But we have to still not lose sight of it, be ready to fight terror on one hand and to look for any, any opportunities to move forward on the, on the uh, reconciliation and arrangement. In regard to the other part of it, we are doing a lot to try to reduce the amount of casualties when we are acting. And the terror, terror organizations are deliberately acting from within schools, hospitals, the, the, the basic the command post of Hamas in Gaza is underneath the biggest hospital in North, in the northern Gaza. So it's, it's not easy. But, but what's being done? Hmm? What, is, what is being done then? So it's done, the, it's, there, there is a lot of effort, first of all, to tell people. We are telling through telephones and through kind of uh, putting kind of uh, radioing to the public and even spreading uh, leaflets. They're telling people what's going to happen and ask them to evacuate places where a uh, fire is, is launched at us. You have to bear in mind the dilemma because we, we are responsible to the life of our own people. So the price of not intercepting a coming salvo of missiles could end up losing the life of your own people. So it's not that simple. We are trying to minimize, we are trying to follow a good intelligence. We are making a huge effort to use ec extremely accurate, high-precision munitions, so on. But it all happens, especially in Gaza, in an area where millions of uh, probably 1.5 or 1.8 million people are living over a very, very small, small area. So I, I don't see a simple way to, to uh, bypass it. It comes back to the issue of uh, Hamas, initiates it, we never initiate it. It's all retaliation for attacks on our uh, uh, civilians. I remember escorting President Obama before he was elected into the city of Jderot and showed him a kind of all the pieces from the rockets. The felder taking me into a bunker where uh, children are, are having their kindergarten meetings in a bunker, in a shelter underneath the ground and telling him that these, these youngsters, they are living with their parents and grandparents in a place where within 15 seconds, 15 seconds, you have to be in shelter or uh, risk your life for, for years. And that's something that uh, we ask him, what would have you done in, if, if it happened in uh, San Diego from Tijuana? And he basically, uh, his basic answer was, if my two daughters, they were much younger at the time, 
were living in such a uh, situation, I would have done whatever I can to put an end to it. So that's basically exactly what we are do doing. So we, we're almost at the end. In fact, Thank we're you. virtually at the end. So let me do this. The, I'm going to ask each of you to take less than a minute, these three here, to ask your question. Then I'll ask you oh. to take about three minutes to respond, please. Hi, my name is Galen. I'm from Israel. I'm a master in public policy student. Uh, you argued in the beginning of the talk that this is the best opportunity for pursuing an agreement with the Palestinians. I wanted to ask you, with the swift decline in the authority of the, of the Palestinian Authority and the swift uh, rise of the popularity of uh, extreme factions in the West Bank, uh, what makes you think that there would be even someone on the other side that would be able to uh, uphold and account for such an agreement? Good. Next gentleman, please. Uh, good evening. My name is Ben Margolin. I'm a junior at Brandeis University. Uh, thank you for speaking with us this evening. Uh, my question is, uh, Mr. Barak, in your opinion, how is the influx of African migrants into Israel going to affect its position in the Middle East? And finally, you get the last question. Yes. Uh, my name is Loi Badir. I'm also from Israel. I'm uh, an Arab-Israeli. I'm a student here in Harvard, and uh, we share the same party. When I vote for you in '99, when you became uh, the prime minister, I want my vote back. Um, <laughs> um, to be honest, Mr. Barak, um, I had the chance to shake Robin's hand before he was shot. I was there. Uh, I was young, still young, but bold. And um, with whom I, I didn't got it. Rabin. Ah, with Rabin, yeah. Yeah. So, unfortunately, uh, well, I live in Israel and I care about Israel. I, I don't want to, to misunderstand me, but uh, I think we have a lack with leadership in Israel. I mean, we keep talking about peace process, about solution for two states. And I think, and I certainly do believe in that, unfortunately, both sides, either the Israeli or the Palestinian side, don't want to reach an agreement especially the Hamas in the Palestinian side. So um, what do you think about that? And the other question, second question, what do you think about this, the state of our prime minister Netanyahu four hours before the election was ended, the last election, about the Arab flogging to the, pool, to the polls when he uh, spoke to the Jew, come and vote for us. Thank you. Okay, I, these three questions don't quite fit together. Okay. But if you would just address them briefly, yes. Yeah, but uh, I, I would expect the rest of the people who sit down because we won't be able to answer your question the, for the, me. Huh? Unfortunately, because of the time, we'll let them come forward for a second and maybe uh -huh. ask a question after. Okay. But we have to stop right okay. there. Okay. Uh, there, there is a problem of uh, extremism on the Palestinian side. And uh, it's true that there are Hamas is not an easy partner, and even Abu Mazen was a little bit disappointing in the recent years. Uh, yet I think that uh, within the context of a regional uh, conference on security, backed by the United States, the Quartet, uh, for the UN, and um, based on Israeli readiness to contemplate the Saudi plan or the Arab League plan together with the Israeli reservation, I believe that there is a good chance that Arab leadership will be ready to back the Palestinians in, uh, in going and trying to, uh, trying to solve the issue. And 
only time will tell whether it works or not, but I think that it's a great and important opportunity. We cannot afford uh, missing it. Um, about the uh, immigrants from Africa, I think that uh, we now see in Europe what happens when it becomes a serious and uh, urgent uh, problem. Uh, some European governments uh, asked us about our experience, how we blocked it, what were the practices of trying to bring them immediately back to to third country, or even what the, the mechanics of this uh, fence along the borders. Uh, I think once we had set this uh, better protection of the border and certain exit for those who were not really refugees, I think that uh, the, the, uh, the problems brought back into the the, the bottle, it's, it's controllable right now in Israel much more than in uh, Europe. On most profound level, I think I mentioned that uh, the immigration problem in Europe probably could look different if Syria had been dealt with differently in the past. And those from sub-Saharan Africa is much more profound issue that has to do with the readiness of the whole world as a community of nations to deal with the real problems of real uh, human beings in other parts of the, the world. Um, in regard to question of leadership, the challenge of leadership is, is real on, on all, all sides of, of our disputes in the Middle East and even in the world. It's a major issue right now. It's not simple to be leader with kind of the atmosphere, the public discourse now is much less kind of uh, tolerant to, to the need or patient for time. There is a need to get answers in a, a short, short uh, kind of uh, sound bites at the pace of video clip uh, on a very shallow level. It, it goes all around the world. Bopo Grillo in Italy or or these guys in uh, the, the new leader, uh, Corbyn in, in the labor, or the new mayor of Madrid or Barcelona or, uh, or Milano. I don't want to give uh, examples from this continent. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, not, it's not easy. Uh, penetrating media and the penetration of a reality show uh, culture into serious uh, political issues is uh, quite, uh, quite frustrating. But uh, my experience in it, and there are people here who are more experienced than me in looking into history, that when a real crisis uh, emerges, people show certain collective common sense and try to find a proper leadership for the uh, challenge. And I wish and hope that that's what will happen uh, in Israel and uh, uh, in our relationship with the Palestinians as well. Thank you. So I'm very sorry to be uh, forced to bring this to a conclusion. But I would say on behalf of all of us here, and especially uh, myself, it's been a great honor to have you here. We appreciate your being so engaged with the group. And we hope you'll come back. So let's say thank you. <laughs>